Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man, and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptised, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. So what's your reason for confidence? A similar question to what we, uh, or what I asked probably last time I was in Acts. We're looking at it from a slightly different angle uh, this time. But what's your reason for confidence? We're told in 1 Peter, aren't we, that we should be ready to give a reason for the hope uh, that we have. When people look at us, do they see that we have a hope? Uh, in these times, do they look at us and say, these are people who have a hope, these are people who are, are confident in these times. Oh, and what's our reason for confidence? The world seems unsettled at the moment. It's on the day that COVID restrictions were lifted in the UK. That's when Russia invaded the Ukraine. It feels like on the world scale, we're going from one disaster to another. And maybe in your life, I, I don't know, all your personal circumstances, maybe you're going from one challenge to another, one, one suffering to another. Life feels like it's spinning out of control. And in those moments, where's your confidence? What's your reason for your confidence, for your hope? It's a question that we all need to answer. It's a question that has to be addressed in life. And yet, during the good times, we easily skip over it. Or during the challenging times, it's easy to just grab for anything that seems to give us hope and confidence. 
Uh, this week there was a BBC uh, news article talking about living in uncertain times. And it rightly highlighted that's nothing new. We've always lived in uncertain times. As humans, times are uncertain. We don't know of ourselves what tomorrow's going to bring. And what it sought to do was look at, okay, what some of the wisdom from ancient times, how did they live in uncertain times? So it went to the Stoics. This article is, what can we learn about the Stoics to face uncertain times? And the answer basically was detachment. Go with the flow. That's how, that's how you deal with uncertain times. You go with the flow. Let nothing move you and you'll be moved by nothing. That's the advice, that was the suggestion that was there. Many voices offering uh, advice today. Is that a good reason for hope and for confidence? As people ask us, well, what's your reason for hope and confidence? Is that something that really gives them hope and confidence? Detachment. During the pandemic, the two biggest um, box office hits have been Spider-Man No Way Home and The Batman. And they've smashed sort of box office records during the pandemic. It's probably worth us asking ourselves, you know, why is it when we live in these uncertain times where there's pressures uh, around us, why is it that the two most popular films are superhero films? Do people really believe, are they really looking for detachment? Is that what they're placing their hope in? I think it's they're looking for deliverance. There's a reason why these things are popular. And so when we think of reasons for hope, for confidence, as the world looks at us, as they ask us, now what better story do we have to offer? What better story are we living? What's your reason for hope? What's your reason for confidence? It's a question we need to ask. It's a question we need to answer. It's something we're going to do as we look through Acts chapter 9. So just a reminder, of course, we're in the book of Acts, Acts, two-volume work, Luke, Acts. Luke expressly uh, puts into writing his reason for this two-volume work at the beginning of Luke. Uh, and it's so that we may know for certain. Now, this is it. This is God's plan and his purpose. It's being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's why he collates all these eyewitness accounts. Acts is the continuation of this work. Jesus now not walking on the earth, but as the risen, as the ascended Lord his continued work in and through his church by the power of the Spirit. Uh, Acts 1, chapter 8. Jesus says, this is a plan. This is what's going to happen. You're going to be my witnesses where Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And we've started to see that happen already in Acts. So when we get to chapter 7, Stephen is murdered by a mob. We're introduced to Saul. He's standing there. He approves of the killing. And this great persecution breaks out against the church. And as that happened, believers are scattered. As they go, they tell people about Jesus. And so we're told when we get into chapter 8 that this message starts to go into Judea and Samaria. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Philip in Samaria. Then chapter 8, was that last week? I lose track of where we are and whether we're missing weeks. But the last time we were in Acts uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip is there proclaiming the message of Jesus to this Ethiopian eunuch who accepts the message of the gospel 
is baptized, and this is the beginning of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Then we come to chapter 9, and Saul, he's trying to undo all of this. His plan is the exact opposite. He wants to put an end to this. So have a look at verse 1. Meanwhile, so whilst all this is happening, the gospel spreading out, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's what Christians were known at that point, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So remember, Jesus' plan, the purpose. My witnesses were Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. What's Saul's plan here? Arrest them, bring them back to Jerusalem. You see what it is? It, it, it's an inversion uh, of Jesus' purpose. I'm going to try and reel it back. I'm going to try and undo it, going to contain it, going, going to lock it up. Saul's plan is to undo the work of the gospel, fighting against the rule of Christ. And in this life now, we will face forces that seek to undo that gospel work, that seek to fight against the rule and the reign of Christ. And we see that on a global scale. We see that in our own personal lives. In sufferings that we face. In sin that we struggle with. So in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, we're told your enemy, Satan, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So with these threats that are coming at us, even the sin that that comes from us, now where's our confidence? How are we going to stand firm uh, at this time? What are we going to do? Just go with the flow? Detachment? Take take the stoic way? I mean, where's the flow leading? Where's it going? This plan to go to chaos, despair, turmoil. It's not... It's not detachment, it's deliverance uh, that we need, that we're given in Jesus Christ. So as we continue through this chapter, there's two things that we're going to focus in on. uh, Our reason for confidence as we see the mercies and the might of Christ. So verses 3 to 9. I'll spend uh, a moment considering then the mercies of Christ. Verse 3, as he, that Saul, near Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul here, he's on this journey of destruction. This man who's bent on violence is here violently arrested by the tender mercies of Christ. He stopped dead in his tracks. He falls down to his knees. And then he hears this voice. The voice of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, we see in verse 5, who calls out to him, Saul, Saul. How do you hear those words? If you were just sitting and you were reading the Bible by yourself, you're not listening to me. Uh, read it out. How might you hear those words, Saul, Saul? Do you hear it like the barking at a child who's not listening? Saul, Saul. 
Well, Jesus has already got Saul's attention. He doesn't need to bark at him. He's been incapacitated. He's blinded by this light. He's brought to the ground. And elsewhere, Luke records Jesus speaking in a similar manner to someone else in Luke 10. When he speaks to Martha. Martha. Martha, you're, you're so worried about so many things, but there's only one thing that matters. And this way of speaking is a manner that is charged with emotion. And just even in these few words, Jesus is addressed to Saul, we see something of Christ's heart towards us in our sin. And so often, you know, we try to run, we try to hide, we try to cover our sin from one another, even from God. There's a pattern that was, well, began in the garden and we just kind of continue it on. Now, ever since we embraced this lie that God is the enemy, that he's against us, we either need to fight or we need to flee. And you just see what happens here as Christ appears to Saul in all his glory. It's both terrifying and yet also gentle at the same time. Saul experiences the incapacitating light of Christ. And when he's brought to his knees, he falls to the ground. He can't run. He's got nowhere to run. He's got nowhere to hide. And in that place where we encounter the light of Christ, what is it that happens? This voice is heard calling out to him, Saul, Saul. And not in a tone that is yelling at him, telling him off, what have you done, Saul? But more with this tenderness of heart, that is, is exhorting, see what I have done. Saul, see who I am and see what I have done for you. And so our memory verse from Holiday Club. Go on, Micah, do you remember it? Seth, do you remember it? Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek. And what? It's not seek and scold, but seek and seek and save. And yet so often we feel like the Son of Man came to seek and to scold the lost. But the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now we see something of Christ's heart here. Now when we're caught in sin, when sin is revealed in our life, so easily we try to run and hide and, and cover it over. The last thing we want to do is come before Christ. We, we sometimes try and convince ourselves, you know, when I'm in a better place, when I've done something more worthy, then I feel like I can come before him in prayer. And yet in so doing, we run away from the one who dearly loves us, the one who is able to cleanse us and to transform us. See here something of the heart of Christ towards us in our sin. He's not one we need to flee from. He's one that we run to. 
And yet we also see something of Christ's heart towards us in our suffering. Again, verse 4. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Which is a strange thing for Jesus to say. And maybe this isn't new to us. But it's worth us considering. Because in Acts 1, Jesus has ascended to heaven. And as Saul goes out to Damascus, he's not trying to find Jesus to arrest. It's the followers of Jesus that he's seeking to imprison, to bring back to Jerusalem. And yet Jesus asks, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus isn't distant. He's not detached from us. He's ascended to heaven, but he's not far removed from us. He's not far removed from you in your suffering and in your struggles. Jesus isn't this general who sits back in comfort whilst he sends the troops out to the front line and they take the hit. We've been considering here week after week the book of Acts. This is the continued work of Jesus Christ who is intimately, who is intensely involved. Now because Jesus has ascended to heaven and because he's poured out the spirit that he's closer to us now than we are to ourselves. Jesus isn't distant. He's not detached. He sympathizes with us in our weakness, in our suffering. And throughout the Gospels, we we read of Jesus being moved, being deeply moved. He saw the crowds. He has compassion on them. They're harassed. They're helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Time and time again, Jesus is moved. He sees a widow and he's moved. And it's the same Jesus, the same Jesus in the Gospels we read of is the same Jesus we read of in Acts. The Jesus who walked the earth, who did good, is the same Jesus who rules and reigns in heaven. Jesus is moved. And when Jesus is moved, it's not in the way that we're moved, when maybe we watch an emotional film or or some sort of plea or music. Because when Jesus is moved, he's moved to act, he moves towards And when Jesus acts, he acts in accordance with who he is. The God who is merciful. The God who is mighty, who has all power and who has all authority. As he moves here and he moves and he acts, as his people are being persecuted. So we see also here the might of Christ. Verses 10 uh, to 20. We, we're going to spend a moment as well looking at the might of Christ. Thank you, sir. Verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. And Jesus says to Ananias, I want you to go and pray for this guy called Saul. Understandably, Ananias has a few reservations about this. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Jesus just replies, go. I know. I want you to go. Go, because this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. 
I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And in the hands of Jesus, the man who breathed out murderous threats is going to be the man who speaks forth the gospel of life. So this is the power of the Lord. As we saw in Psalm 46, the God who takes the chaos waters that roar and foam and they're surging and he transforms them into this life-giving river. A river makes, that makes glad the city of God. You see the might of Christ here. The Saul who set out as this instrument of destruction and yet in the Lord's hands is transformed into an instrument of life. Now as a side point, something that is worth us just spending a few moments considering. Now why is it that Ananias goes and prays for Saul? He's reluctant to at first, understandably. I've heard many reports about this man. Why is it that he goes? He's looking for some sort of reassurance. The Lord gives him reassurance. What is the reassurance that the Lord gives him? And it's not that Jesus says to him, look, go, because in doing so, in praying for Saul, life's going to go well with you. It's going to be nice. It's going to be relaxed. You can have a really peaceful time now because I've, I've dealt with this guy, Saul. Now, that is one of the effects in some ways that happens. Uh, if you look at verse 31, and this is kind of a key marker again in the book of Acts. You come across these phrases about the church growing and being strengthened. But if you see at verse 31, after all these events, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. So there was peace. There was encouragement in the church. But what is it that Jesus actually said to Saul? They basically said, go, because this is how the message of the gospel is going to spread. This is going to further my purposes. And this is instructive for us as we pray, as we pray for world events, as we pray for the challenges and struggles that we face in our own lives, in the life of a church. And that's not to say it's wrong to pray for an end of everything that's happening with COVID. It's not wrong to pray for an end to the conflict in the Ukraine. It's not wrong for us to pray for an end of the struggles that we're facing. Jesus isn't detached. He's not distant. He knows the struggles we're going through. But that's not where our prayers need to end. We're not praying that things would just return back to to normal before those challenges arrive. As though, you know, 2019 was the pinnacle of God's purpose for us. There's something greater, there's something bigger, there's something better, there's something more glorious that we'd be praying for. And it's not peace in the way that the world understands peace, but it's the peace that comes through Jesus Christ. And because God is good, because God is faithful, that he is perfectly committed to his purpose. And his purpose, as we read in Ephesians, of all things being brought together in unity under Christ, everything under Christ. And to settle for anything less than that, well, we've just completely missed it. That's God's good and glorious purpose. And that's the best thing we can be praying for, the best thing we can be seeking for. 
that the hope for this world, whether the world recognizes it or not, is the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. That is what our communities around us need. That's what the world needs. That's what's needed in the Ukraine and in Russia now for the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ to be known and that people would submit to that and that they would enjoy the, the life and the freedom and the joy that comes through Jesus Christ. Now that's God's priority. It's God's priority because he is good, because he is faithful. Is it our priority? And when it becomes our priority, you know, we have a supernatural confidence because nothing can thwart God's good and perfect plans. And so in verse 17, Ananias, he went to the house, he entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that promise from Acts 2.39. The promise of the Spirit is for you. It's for all who are far off. As many as the Lord your God shall call. Saul, who was far off, has been brought near. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up, was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. And Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Now, uh, I'll be a pedantic preacher. A pedantic preacher point is Saul does not become Paul when he is converted. Saul doesn't become Paul. He's still called Saul. Uh, he's only known as Paul when he begins his missionary journey, when he goes out into the Gentile world. Uh, and it's similar to uh, there's Chinese university students I know. When they come to the UK, they take a very English name, like Bob or something. It's probably so we don't butcher their Chinese name. Uh, similar, now Paul had several names. Saul, his Hebrew name, Paul was his Latin name. That's the name that is used when he's out uh, doing his mission uh, among the Gentiles. So Saul doesn't become Paul. Something a lot more impressive is going on here. Have a look at verse 17. What does change? Where well, it goes from being Saul the persecutor, Saul the hater of the way to brother Saul. The destroyer becomes a disciple. The murderer, he becomes a missionary. And so verse 20, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Back in verse 2, what was Saul's plan as he set out? He was going to reel it all in. From Damascus, he was going to cause a great gospel retreat. We get to verse 20. And because of the mercy, because of the might of Christ, what has happened? We see this gospel advance going from Damascus at the very hands of the one who sought to destroy the church. Now this is the Lord taking the chaos waters that are bent on destruction and transforming them into this life-giving stream. And so when we face challenges that are coming at us, even when we face the challenges of our own sin. Where's our hope? Where's our confidence for that change, for that transformation? Now, where are we placing our hope and confidence? I think we know what the right answer is, but where are we actually placing it? As we considered a few weeks back, so often what it is that we jealously guard and reveal something of where we're placing our hope and confidence at that time. 
And it's worth us asking ourselves and testing. You know, as those things perhaps bubble up in the surface of our hearts, well, how do they compare to the confidence and the hope that we have in Christ? That we see here. And we see those things enough. Our hope is based on Christ and in Christ alone. And as we consider the mercy of Christ, as we consider the might of Christ, as we look to Jesus, as we recognize that we, like Saul, those enemies of God, and that God's love was demonstrated that whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not because of anything that we've done, not because of of who we are, not because there's anything impressive in us, but it's all rooted in God. It's all because of who God is. Because he is love. He's the one who reached out to us. At the point where we were furthest away, Christ reached out to us. He drew near. In that tenderness, in that mercy, in that compassion, in order that we might be brought near to him. And we can say with Paul, the son of God who loved me, who gave himself for me. And who not only died for us, but also rose again. Who's defeated the power of sin and death once for all. And rules and reigns is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's been given the name that's above every name, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And so when people ask us, what's your reason for confidence. How can we have confidence? Now we can say the Lord Jesus Christ. Now who died for me. Even whilst I was not interested. Even whilst I was actively rebelling against God. Whilst I was his enemy. He died for me. And he rose. And he reigns. And he has all power and he has all authority. And so I have no reason to doubt his love for me. No reason to doubt his power towards me. And that's why I'm confident. That's where our confidence is rooted. So let's not settle for anything less. Let's keep setting our focus on Christ. On his mercy and his might. And for it's in him that we have a certain hope and a confidence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this confidence that we do have in Jesus Christ. And I pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened. That we may indeed know the hope to which you have called us. Lord, the riches of your glorious inheritance in your holy people. Just how much, Lord, you treasure us. How much you love us. That we would see that as we look at the price that that Christ paid for us. That we would know how much we are loved. Lord, and that it is not a love that is... Is secured uh, because of who we are, but it is a love that is anchored, that is secured in you. And so whether we've had a good day or a bad day, or that, that love is secure, or that we would know that love. 
Lord, and your incomparably great power towards us who believe the same power you exerted when you raised Christ from the dead. Lord, give us those eyes to see. And indeed a heart that, that moves forward and presses into Christ daily. Amen.